you have your Bibles, open it to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 1. says, One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Now, the time of prayer, 3 in the afternoon, is an interesting time. We know from Matthew and Mark's gospel that it was at this hour that Jesus actually died on the cross. John's gospel tells us that he said, it is finished. And in the other gospels, it tells us at this hour is when the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies was ripped. The, the veil was rent from top to bottom. And so it's a, a poignant time, a time when... Jesus died and made access available into the very presence of God. And at this time, they're going in to pray. How fitting. Now, the Jewish people prayed three times a day for three hours. An hour, well, one hour, three times a day. They'd go in at nine in the morning, at 12 noon, and at this time, three in the afternoon would be their times of prayer. And their time of prayer would be broken up into basically three parts. They'd take about 15 minutes and it would be on meditation, thinking on the greatness of God. And then they would have about a half hour that would be spent on petition, asking of God. And then the last portion, the last 15 minutes, would be on adoration, worship and praising who God is. And we kind of see that in Jesus' example. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. God, you are holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day that petition, our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That petition asking of God, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. That praise and worship. It's similar. Now, it doesn't mean you have to worry about, oh, when I'm praying, did I do my you know, 15 minutes or did I do... Uh, uh, we are to pray without ceasing, Paul tells us. We are to constantly be praying. You know, what sets Christianity apart from other faiths is not that we pray. Muslims pray. Hindus pray. What sets us apart is not that we pray. What sets us apart is what's about to happen next. And let's read and find out. Now a man crippled from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful. Now this gate called Beautiful was also called the Golden Gate, not like the one in San Francisco, or the Eastern Gate. And so it was kind of, you were to come down from the Mountain of Olives and go through the Kidron Valley, you would go in through this gate into the temple court. And so it's known as the gate called Beautiful or the Eastern Gate. And as they were going through the gate, this man was there where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave him, gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. He wasn't expecting this. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. Again, Luke being a physician would point out how this happened. His ankles kind of were disconjointed and all of a sudden they kind of popped back into socket. You know, I know I sound, it just hurts thinking that, huh? But anyway, they became strong and he jumped to his feet 
and he began to walk. Then he went into the temple with them, the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And you would be too if you were there. That's the difference between us praying and other faiths praying. We pray to the living God who is at work among us. We don't just do a ritual time of prayer. Oh, it's this time I'm going to face this direction. I'm going to say this prayer. I'm going to repeat these things. I'll count whatever it is and how many times I repeat this over and over and over again. We pray to the living God who is alive, who works among us. That's the difference. It's not enough to pray. A lot of people pray. It is connecting to the living God. That's what it's about. And that's what's taking place here as they go in there and they minister to this young, this well, this old man, I guess. He's been there for a while. Now, it's interesting because if you were crippled, you were not allowed to go into the temple to offer up worship. The law forbade it. And the reason it did was because it was a, a type of what Christ was to be, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect lamb. God required perfection, which none of us could meet, only Jesus could. But the whole idea was there were certain things, if you were disfigured, if you, were, if you had these infirmities, you weren't allowed into this area to offer sacrifice. And so this man is now going into the temple for the first time. Can you imagine? No wonder he's leaping, he's jumping, he's praising God. How exciting that is for him. There, there, years ago, in 1991 or 92, there was a Russian astronaut, and I got his name, I don't know if I can pronounce it. It was Sergei Kirkalov. Anyway, this guy was orbiting the Earth when the Soviet Union collapsed. Do you, does anyone remember this? Because the Soviet Union, Emily, you don't, trust me, it was 1991. Uh, how old were you then? Yeah, okay. So it was like, this guy was orbiting the earth and all of a sudden his country collapsed. And he was left orbiting for over a hundred days because no one wanted to take responsibility for getting him back down. Because of the money. Can you imagine? He was known as the last citizen of Russia because he was up there when it was still, you know, a country and now it stopped being a country, but he's still up there. And I forget the whole story of how he got, but he finally came back down. But he was stranded out there. He was like a, a man without a planet. He, he couldn't get back to Earth. He was outcast. And, you know, that was what this man was. That's what all of us were until Jesus. We were lame. More ways than just we were defeated. We were crippled. We were broken. And God strengthened us and made access in to his presence. And so he goes into that place. I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago how 
the story of Pope Pius was there counting his money and Thomas Aquinas came in and the Pope was counting all the money that came in from the, the church and the coffers there and, you know, the Catholic Church being strong and mighty and powerful. And, and he said, Thomas, as he is counting the money, I guess we can no longer say silver and gold have I none. And then Thomas shot back and goes, but neither can we say in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. They were enriched monetarily, but they were bankrupt spiritually. And so many times that's the case. We, we forfeit what we need, the power of God in our lives, to strengthen and to do wonders for his name's sake. And as they looked down and took the time to look at him, you know, there's a good chance that Peter and John may have been leading this prayer. Good chance. They were well known, I'm sure, after Pentecost. 3,000 heard him speak at that time. So there's a good chance they might have been leading this prayer meeting. And on their way there, they stop and are dealing with this guy. Now, this convicts me because there's times when I'm on my way even to church. You know, you're going to church and you see someone in need. Uh, I'd help you, but I got to get to church. And then there's just something conflicting about that. You know, I, I'd really help you, but I've got an appointment. And they were willing to be bothered with this man. Now, it's funny because some people get bothered easily. Have you noticed that? Everything bothers them. They're bothered, you know, that we didn't sing the songs that they wanted today. We're, we're bothered because, you know, my, I had to wait in line at Starbucks or, or Coffee Bean. Uh, we're, we're bothered by, and people who are bothered are bothered about everything. Everything bothers them. You notice that? And these guys were willing to be bothered. They're willing to cut into their time even though they were on their way somewhere. And I wonder, are, are we bothered? Are we willing to be bothered? Are we willing to be have our days just interrupted? Because life is a continual interruption. Have you noticed that? You know, it's been said, you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. And it seems like that's the case so many times. It's like, oh, I want to do this, and all of a sudden, interruption. This happens. The car breaks down. You know, the economy collapses. You know, if you're an astronaut, the country collapses. You know, I mean, so many things can happen where life is a continual interruption. And if you're easily bothered, life is just a bother. And everything is annoying. And you complain about this and you complain about that. And there are needs in front of you that you just find it a bother. But they didn't. They took the time to be bothered, and instead of just it being an inconvenient interruption, it became an opportunity for God to work. In my own life, a lot of these interruptions and bothers in my life have been opportunities for God to speak and minister to me, to do a deep work in my heart in that inconvenient time, in that difficult time, in that time of just frustration God is waiting to minister to us. It was C.S. Lewis, I believe, who said that God speaks to us in our life 
He whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our life, but he shouts at us in our pain. In those times of difficulty, we are more attentive usually than other times. And if we're willing to be bothered in those inconveniences, perhaps God is there speaking to us, shouting to us, trying to work within us. And, and so he he's healed. He's he's his ankles are restored and strengthened, and he jumps to his feet, and he's just overwhelmed, and everyone is overwhelmed, and. I love verse 11 because it says, While the beggar held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. I love how it says they were, he was holding on to them. Guy hadn't walked for years. He had to learn how to walk again. Even though his legs were strengthened, this is all new to him. And, and you know, sometimes we have to be willing to let someone hold on to us. Sometimes we, we maybe lead someone to faith in Christ. Well, they need someone to hold on to. Again, are you going to be willing to be bothered and let them hold on to you? To be there. To be there for them when they need it. Or it's like, hey, okay, you know, I did my job. You know, you got to stand on your own now, buddy. Get, get going and you just kind of cut them loose too soon. This guy needed someone to hold on to. Sometimes we need someone to hold on to. Can we be one of those people that someone can hold on to? when their their legs are still weak, when they're just learning how to stand? Are we one of those people that can come alongside, that they can grasp hold of us and walk with us and go near to them? Or after a week, two weeks, we're bothered. There it is again. But he held on to them and he identified with them. And I love that. I could just picture them walking with him. And because it, it says he was walking and leaping, he probably didn't know how to walk yet. And it's all new to him. And his legs are all over the place. And he's, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's, he's into the temple. I always wondered what it was like to be able to go in here. And now I get to go in here and he's praising God. And he's just making a ruckus. And he's causing a commotion. I'm sure some people were bothered by it. But God had done something amazing. And then Peter sees this opportunity as the crowd is there, as people are running to them to, to see what's going on. What's this commotion? Here's all this commotion. Hey, isn't that the guy? Yeah, and pretty soon the crowd is running and Peter again seizes that opportunity. And we talked about this Sunday. We talked about how Peter was a man of preparation. He was going to pray. He was a man of prayer. We saw in the last chapter that they continued steadfast, continually in the apostles' teachings in breaking of bread and in prayer and fellowship. So he was a man of preparation. He was a man who was empowered by God. The Spirit had fallen upon them and he was walking in the Spirit and he also was a man who, when the opportunity came, he fixed his gaze, he saw this opportunity and he was able to step through that. And once again, Peter now comes into the, the court here in Solomon's colonnade and all these people are running and checking out what's going on and he seizes the opportunity. And he starts speaking up and what he says is incredible. First thing he says, he said to them, men of Israel, and he asks them two questions. One is, why does this surprise you? And the second is, why do you stare at us? as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk. Two questions. First, he addresses them as men of Israel. 
Now, when he says men of Israel, he is not referring to a country. Because I don't know about you, but I think Israel, I think, oh, there's the nation of Israel over there. Men of Israel, Israel is who? Who was changed from Jacob to Israel? Men of Israel are, you're the descendants of Jacob, of Israel. And he's going to go on and, and expound on that. But you see, the whole idea is now he's saying, men of Israel, descendants of Jacob. First question, why does this surprise you? Descendants of Jacob, they have a history of God doing miraculous things. God providing for the nation. God delivering the nation of his descendants. Why would you be surprised at this? Don't you know what's happened? Don't you know whose children you are? Don't you know your heritage? Don't you know where you came from? Don't you know what belongs to you? That makes me wonder. If someone was miraculously healed, would I be, oh, what's going on? And would they, you know, descendants and followers of Jesus. Why are you surprised? If God raised Jesus from the dead, isn't he able to quicken your bodies as well? Isn't he able to work among you today as well? And you see, what it does is it shows how little I really trust in God. It puts my faith kind of where it really is. Would you be surprised? Oh man, I would be surprised. Why would you be surprised? Don't you know who Jesus is? Yeah. Men of Israel. Why are you surprised? You shouldn't be surprised. Not you. You know who your descendants are and where they came from. And so, to us, followers of Christ... Are we surprised that God wants to do amazing things? Why are you surprised? Second question, he goes in and he asks, and why do you stare at us? As if by our own power or godliness, we had made this man walk. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there he is, children of men of Israel. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Wow, this is a powerful mouthful. First he starts off, and this is incredible, because right here there is an incredible temptation before Peter. Everyone is staring at them. And instead of saying, yes, yes, this man is healed, yes, you know, I have a very keen eye. I, I was able to see this man's need, and, and I have a very sensitive spirit. And, and God spoke to me, and I said, yes, God, what is that you're saying? <laughs> this man here? 
And God spoke to me and I said, I, I am your servant. I hear, Lord. I will obey and do. And not everyone can hear like I can, but I did. And that's me. There, there's no attention brought to himself of taking the glory. He, he doesn't set himself as more important in their eyes, which is very, very important. Because we get this idea of hierarchy. And Peter just says, why are you looking at us? As if it was us and our godliness or anything of us that did this. What do you think spiritual is? What is your definition of someone who's spiritual? And someone who is spiritual, are they any closer to God than you? Than this poor man? Or do they depend on the same grace that all of us depend on to get into the presence of God? We do disservice to the work of Christ in our world by placing importance on individuals. Oh, he's a missionary. So are you, if you share your faith with someone. Well, they're a pastor. So what? What does that mean? Does that mean they're more important? No. They have responsibilities. They'll receive greater judgment for how they handle the scriptures and teach it. And they're responsible for people, but they're not better than anyone. But by placing names and titles on people, pastors, elders, deacons, all those are our titles for people holding positions. But we never see in scripture, Pastor Paul said... Pastor Peter spoke, Pope Peter, whatever. They, we, don't, we don't see anything addressed to any of the apostles. They are called apostles because they identified with these are the ones that Jesus poured into. But they don't exalt themselves. And the reason I think this is important is because a lot of work does not get done because we think, well, that's for missionaries, that's for pastors, that's for those people, evangelists. They're the ones. Oh, those are titles and those are explain what that ministry is. But it's not special people, it's just titling what some people are doing. And if you say, well, that's for them, then you're excluding yourself and you're kind of taking responsibility away from yourself. But we're the body. We're jointly fit together, Paul tells us in Corinthians. Every member has a function. One of our brothers here had an ingrown toenail. We prayed for him Sunday. He's working. And it got so bad last time that he had it that it circled around. They had to operate where the doctor said it almost started going into the bone. Yeah, I like watching your faces when I say that. And it's amazing what one toe can do to the whole body. As if that toe says, I've got you. <laughs> you will listen to me. Every part matters. I'm just a toe in the body of Christ. Well, then you're very important. You can cripple the whole body if you don't do what you're supposed to do. 
see yourself as part of the body. You're nobody special, but you are a part of something very special. And it's important to understand that. Peter didn't exalt himself. In fact, he says, why are you looking at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? I wish we could just record this and play this over to some of these TV preachers who just seem like, oh, anointing is on me. It's like, it's not your power. And you're not any godlier than anyone else, so just get off get off it. And <laughs> How do you really feel, Sam? <laughs> we had made this man walk. He said, and then he goes through and he says, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men of Israel. It's your heritage. This is what it is. And he says, verse 14, you disown the holy and righteous one. You ask that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life. Wow. How would you like that on your conscience? Killed the author of life. And that title is just so powerful. But going back just to to dealing with them and Peter's recognition of God. You know, Peter didn't exalt himself. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Peter, not too long prior to this, had denied the Lord three times. Peter knew who he was. And that's what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about his thorn in his flesh, his weakness. Chapter 12, verse 9 and 10, he says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because it's not about me. It's not my godliness. It's not my power. It's Him. And if I am empty of my own power, then God's power is able to rest upon me. And that's exactly what was happening. And here he's known as the author of life. I love that title. In John 10, Jesus said, The thief comes to still kill and to destroy, but I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. In the context there, the thief that he's talking about are are false teachers, those who are not declaring the truth. But I've come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Later on in verse 28-ish, he says that he's come to give us eternal life. An abundant life and eternal life. And I've always thought of eternal life as, well, that's what happens after I die. I die and then I start eternal life. But you see, abundant life and eternal life are connected to the author of life. In him is life. Him is light and is the light of all men. He is life. He is the author of life. You're connected to God. And when you get connected to God, you're connected to abundant life. You're connected to eternal life. Eternal life starts now. 
It doesn't start after I die. It starts now. And it's hid in the person of Jesus. He is the author of life. What a beautiful title that is. But what frightening and haunting words it is to hear, you killed the author of life. Wouldn't want to go to sleep with that. That's what happened. He says, but God raised him from the dead. And then he says, by faith, in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him. It is faith in him, faith that comes through him. So it's not our faith. You see, a lot of times we, we need men of faith. But it's really faith in him and faith through him. It's not that we need men of faith. We need faithful men and women. And the whole idea of faith, what, well, the faith is in him. In Ephesians 2.8, we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves. What does that mean? We are saved by grace. Grace is obvious. It's an unmerited favor. It's something that is given free. We are saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is referring to the faith. Because grace is automatically not yours. Through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. So this faith that they had was through him. It was given by him. It wasn't worked up. It wasn't prayered up. If you pray enough, if you believe enough, if you have enough faith, it is faith in the right one. You see, faith requires something. You don't just, faith is not like the force out there, you know. Well, their faith, faith is floating around here somewhere. No, you have faith in something. I have faith in this chair that it's going to hold me. I have faith in my car, or maybe not, that it's going to get me there. It requires an object. There's something you have faith in. It's not just the source out there. They had faith in the person of Jesus. No better place to have faith than in Jesus. And so it's in him that this man is here complete and healed. And then I love verse 17 because he's just basically blasted them. He's told them that they're responsible for killing the author of life. That Pilate wanted to release him, but you said no. And you had him put to death anyway. You killed him. God raised him from death. But verse 17, he says, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. And so he understands them, but it doesn't let them off the hook. The sovereignty of God at work never exempts the responsibility of men. And so God was at work, but you're still responsible for your behavior. But the way he puts it is very tactful. Because there are some people who just want to blast you. They just want to hammer. You killed the author of life. You're a sinner. You're this. You're that. And they just hammer and they hammer and they want to pulverize you and make you a pancake. And pancakes don't usually make good Christians. They're just kind of defeated, deflated, and they're just useless. He tells them the truth and he says, you were ignorant, which is exactly what Jesus said. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. 
You did this in ignorance as did your leaders. God was at work at this time. But verse 19 is the key. Repent. Then, and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Another beautiful verse. Repent means change your mind. Change what you are thinking about this person of Jesus because you were responsible for what happened. Change your mind that what you did can be forgotten and forgiven. Change your mind. That's what's necessary. A lot of times we don't have an understanding of what it means to repent. And it really has to do with the person of Jesus and the responsibility of our own lives for the things that we have done. Because each of us is accountable before God for our lives. And what we do with the person of Jesus is very, very important. Here, they let them crucify him. They're responsible for it. That happens today, to this day. People are, Jesus, I don't believe in Jesus. Okay, then you're responsible before God for your life, for everything that you do, for every lie that you told, for every time you were mean to someone, for every time you were hurtful, for every wrong that you've done. You're responsible then before God. Unless you change your mind about the person of Jesus and allow him to cleanse you so that God can heal, wipe away your sins, as he says in verse 19. And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Who wants times of refreshing? We all do. That sounded cool, y'all. Mmm, yeah. <laughs> times of refreshing. To know that you are forgiven. To know that you can have access before the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the God of Heaven, and not be booted out because of what you've done. Because you've changed your mind and repented about the person of Jesus and accepted the work of Christ on your behalf. That is wonderful news. Because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Condemnation fell upon Christ. That's wonderful news. Because I've done enough to condemn myself today. And that's excluding the past 40 plus years. Today was enough. But I can be refreshed. Because the Lord has forgiven me. And this is also prophetically talking about the nation of Israel itself. Times of refreshing when God is going to restore the nation of Israel. Verse 20 says, And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. And again, that is going to be the restoration of the nation of Israel. God's establishing his kingdom on the earth. For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me 
from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, Through your offspring all peoples on earth will be blessed. When God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Once again, we see Peter has such an incredible command of the scriptures. He starts declaring to them all the things that God has foretold concerning the Messiah. He gives them quotes from the Psalm, Psalm 118. From Deuteronomy 18, he's talking to them from Genesis chapter 22. He's just unfolding the scriptures to them concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get into this more next time in chapter 4. But it was only just a month or so ago that this man is not the man we see standing here. This was the Peter who denied the Lord three times, who was at a distance. And all of a sudden, man, where did this guy come from? Well, he had been instructed by Jesus himself, no doubt how he learned the scriptures, but then he had been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he now is moving into that place that Jesus wants all of us to move into, to pick up where he left off, to take that baton and further the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what Peter is doing. And he's disclosing not only their sin to them and what they've done concerning the Messiah, but he's also disclosing to them what God wants to do now through them because they are going to turn from their wicked ways and God is going to use them to bless the rest of the world. Powerful. And you see, the vision doesn't end with, you guys just need to repent. That's the beginning. That's not the end. That's where it starts. And then it continues from there. Because God has big plans in store for you. They include the whole world. Just turn from your wicked ways. And then God can move you from there, there, and there. It's so important that we have that vision and that heart that God has to move out towards other people, to reach out, to extend His love once we turn from our ways. Because God is all about the people. I read a, a little article uh, that I get sent from Chuck Smith Jr. And he was asking, what do I really want? Why am I doing what I, I do and sharing my faith and doing this? And I, I love what he said because it kind of captures just the, the difference between the religiosity that people can have and actual faith in the living God that changes the lives of people. He said, I want more than anything for you to know Jesus Christ. I'm not content that you know about the main character in the Gospels 
or doctrines regarding Jesus and how his death on the cross results in our salvation, or that you would have sentimental feelings for a Jesus who exists only in your imagination. If knowing Jesus defines what it means to be a Christian and is worth giving up everything, then I want you to know him. I want you to have the kind of inner knowledge that a child has with its mother. I want your knowledge of Jesus Christ to be dynamic, to awaken your spirit to him when he reveals himself close at hand, and to draw near to him in times when he seems far away. I cannot rest until you become aware of Jesus in all the environments of your life and your spiritual development is shaped around him and you are growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Only then will I be grateful for the privilege of planting or watering the seeds. See, I'm not content to just come and talk to people about Jesus. I want people to be captured by the person of Jesus. I want him to shake their world, to rock their life, and to set them free. And until that happens, it's not enough. Until that happens, it's falling way short of what we're supposed to do. I don't care if people come to this church. If a thousand people come and they don't know Jesus, then we have failed terribly. But if one lame man is restored and is connected to the living God, to the author of life, then I'm satisfied for that one man. But I want that to happen with every man, every woman that I know. And until that happens, I'm not content. It's not enough. It's not enough. God wants to change the lives of people. And he wants to use you and me, just like he used Peter and John for this man. And it's going to use it here in the nation Israel. May we be those kind of men and women willing to step in and do the things that God calls us to do to change the lives of the people that are around us, for God's sake. Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for recording this in, in Scripture so that we can have insight into how you worked. And it is so refreshing indeed to know that we can be forgiven and that it, it is not any work or godliness that we have to muster up. It is faith in Jesus, faith that comes through Jesus. It is depending on Jesus and believing in Jesus. That's what we need. And Lord, we pray that you would stir our hearts, that we would look to you, that we would long to know you, that we would wait upon you. And as we wait upon you, as we look to you, as we desire you to work in our lives, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would empower us, that you would fill us, that you would strengthen our feeble legs, God, that you would restore us 
you would refresh us. And then you would use us to refresh others. Father, may our vision go beyond ourselves, beyond our comfort. May we be bothered by you and the things that you want us to do. God, shake us. Move in us and through us. Thank you again, Father, for your faithfulness. You are good all the time. We do love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.